Prime Minister, I heard from my spy, the chemist. He wants to meet tonight. His warning of war. As he did in May. The warning was accurate. He cried wolf. That's how it was perceived. Why do you trust this man? He knows everything. And he says war is coming. Yeah, well, of course war is coming, but when? Without Diane's support, there can be no mobilization. And he is unconvinced that the threat is imminent. If he resigns, the government falls. It's, it's that simple. And then the Arabs will most certainly attack. What does your gut tell you? My gut is none of your business. But... Hmm. You're right, there is something. I'll stay in Tel Aviv with my son over Kippur. After your meeting, call me on the secure line. Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Golda. Golda, are you all right? Breathe. Golda, please breathe. The enemy has tasted blood. There is no reason for them to stop now. This is 1948 again. We are fighting for our lives. If the Americans throw us to the dogs, and the Arabs reach Tel Aviv. I will not be taken alive. And you are to make sure of that. The Americans, they won't let us down. Why not? Because you won't let it happen. Sorry, but you're not dead yet. <laughs> Mm, alive and kicking. One of the reasons that this surprise has occurred is that nobody could believe that Hamas would do this because there's no sense to it. It doesn't help the Palestinian people in any way, quite the reverse. It means that the possibility of a Palestinian state has been put back decades if it's ever going to be possible now. The voice of our guest today, Nicholas Martin, writer and producer of Golda. Dame Helen Mirren stars as Israel's iconic and only female Prime Minister, the first elected woman to hold such office in the whole world. The scale of Israel's military and intelligence failure on October the 7th is difficult to comprehend. Everything that could go wrong, did go wrong. Border security and monitoring response. I was at Kerem Shalom just weeks before as the IDF confidently showed us the border cooperation it had with Hamas. We even crossed into the Gazan side and spoke to their guard. We were protected by Palestinian machine guns. The certainty that war was coming but from the north was unnerving and it was a complete subterfuge. There'll be an epic reckoning in Israel. The shock will reverberate through the generations. On October the 6th, 1973, on the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, the armies of Egypt and Syria 
launched a coordinated surprise attack against Israel, a three-week-long war on two fronts. And while the fighting ended with impressive IDF battlefield victories, it left Israel shocked and traumatised back then too. The Yom Kippur War cost Israel the lives of 2,656 soldiers, 7,251 injured, 294 prisoners of war were captured by the enemy. And remember, the population of Israel back then was just 3.3 million. Israel today pushes three times that. The Golden Movie was seven years in the making, and as you'll hear, Nicholas has delved so deeply into her story, and by extension Israel's story from independence to the 1970s, which makes this such a captivating interview. He's also made deep friendships with Golda's family and throughout Israel. A filmmaker who's become a world authority on the period. Golda also stars Liv Schreiber as Henry Kissinger and Camille Cotin as Lou Kadar, Golda's assistant. And our episode music has just been composed too, in support of Israel, by my friend Brian Eddery, with concert violinist Miriam Kramer. Brian's called it Israel in my heart, Ner Tamir. Brian, thank you for allowing it to be our beautiful episode theme tune. If you're a regular listener to Johnny Gould's Jewish State, you'll know I'm tenacious in the pursuit of guests. And I'd been talking to Nicholas about an interview for two years before we eventually sat down in his London home for this considered and emotional discussion. Nicholas, thank you for the movie and for being such an open interviewee. Nicholas Martin, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny. <laughs> this is quite a coup. Thank you for welcoming to your, your home. And uh, we've been talking about this for, um, for a couple of years. In fact, while the movie was still being made. So I feel like I'm, uh, I'm an insider from the outside, in a way. It couldn't have happened without you, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hope the success at the box office has something to do with this interview and I'm very touched I've seen the movie I saw it with my wife it's very sensitively written and we had the privilege of having you in the cinema talking about the way you wanted to make it and you wanted to make it in a way which was truthful to the story as much as a short movie could be with all the detail that must have been available to you yes um I mean I think that I've come to realize that I can't make up 
anything that's ever going to be as interesting as the truth. And the more I dug into this story, the more interesting it became. And the tiny details um, were just as fascinating as the overall picture. So my job really was to, first, firstly, to understand the story, which is vast. And there was just an endless, endless um, quantity of documents, books, um, people to meet. And so I really devoted the first 18 months to just trying to understand the story and, and understand who Golda was. And then to try and draw out of this, uh, you know, a, a very, very lengthy, difficult story. An hour and a half of um, condensed, uh, needed to be entertainment, of course, but to try and draw out what I thought would be the most accurate story I could tell, given the restrictions of uh, the, the, the movie form. And it started with the family as well. I mean, you have the blessing of the family, don't you? And not all um, bios do. Often there are family who are upset by what comes out, but, but this is a very different case. Yes, I started with um, um, Golda's grandson, Shaul, who is a wonderful man who's become a friend and we met and he's the kind of gatekeeper for the family there. I'm not the first person to have turned up wanting, wanting stuff from them. I'm sure you can imagine it as a constant flow of people wanting a piece of Golda. Um, but we got on well and he had liked my previous film, Florence Foster Jenkins, fortunately. Delightful film. Thank you. Um, a very different uh, but um, he just said, you know, if if you tell the truth about our grandmother, then we will help you. Um, and I pledged that I would do my very best. And that was really my gateway into the world of Golda because they're still very cl close to, for instance, Zvizamir, the former head of uh, Mossad, who was such played such a crucial role in saving Israel um, by giving this warning of war. Um, and I was able to meet lots of people surrounding Golda, as well as uh, Zvika, who I met uh, five or six years ago. A few Zvika. Zvizamir, that's Zvika is his nickname. Yeah. Uh, I'm on nickname terms like with the former head of Mossad. So that's um, it's cool. That's good. Hope it's not a password. <laughs> um, and uh, Zvi Zamir is, and sadly has now succumbed to dementia and is in a, an old people's home. But when I met him five or six years ago, he was still uh, sharp. Uh, he was, um, I think, 95 then. 90, he's pushing 100 now. And... Um, uh, I then set out to try and meet everyone that was in that room at the time who's still alive. There are a, a, a few people, um, and particularly the younger, uh, the, the people who were a bit younger then. Um, for instance, Avna Shalev, who went on to become the director of Yad Vashem, um, who's a mere 80. Um, and I had... Um, I managed uh, uh, an hour with him for lunch and he I think he was going off that afternoon to 
welcome Donald Trump to um, Yad Vashem. Wow. Um, so I was very lucky to meet him. He was very busy. Uh, but I met, met David Ivry, who was sec second in command of the uh, Air Force at the time, was a young man. He's now in his 80s and runs Boeing in, um, or ran Boeing in um, Israel. And he um, was able to give me half an hour at the crack of dawn. I had to turn up to his office, I don't know, 6 a.m. That was the only time he could see me. And that was, uh, that was you know, absolutely fascinating to get their take on what had taken place in the complexities of the battles. And uh, so I, I, I set out really to just gather as much information as I could. And I was particularly helped by um, uh, an academic, um, Haggai Tsoref, Dr. Haggai Tsoref, who is a Golda biographer. And, but also, at the, he's now retired, but he was the head of the National Archive in Jerusalem and had the highest possible security clearance. So he has really devoted his life to um, going through the documents, the, the many millions of pages of documentation around the uh, first Yom Kippur War. Um, so if, if anyone knew that story, um, it, it, it was Haggai. And so, again, fabulously generous with his time and his experience and just want, you know, his view was, if you can make a good film about Golda, then you can have all of my help. That's wonderful. But that required trust up front. Um, I'm st still slightly puzzled why I was welcomed into Golda World in the way I was, because, you know, I'm not Jewish. I knew very little about Israel. I knew virtually nothing about Golda. I just had my very vague childhood memories. I can remember her on the TV, and uh, I was 10 when the Yom Kippur War started. But I have a, a feeling about the images, which was one of um, anxiety. I seem to remember, even at 10, picking up a sense of anxiety. So I suspect my memories are of the Yom Kippur War, seeing it on the TV in black and white. And I remember Golda. Um, and um, there's some, there was something... Uh, I, I'm, it was also... Um, it, it stirred up um, childhood memories because I can remember I was very young when I first did, heard about the Holocaust and I, I was deeply, deeply shocked as a child. I may only have been eight or ten years old, but it was really the, the first time I'd, I'd sort of been, a, I had a sense that there was evil in the world mm. and, and it really stuck with me. And I, I've never lost that feeling. It stayed with me all of, you know, all of 50 years or more. And the memories uh, of Golder on the TV and the, 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 and I think it was probably watching the, the TV series, The World at War, which I think I don't know, when was that? 19... In the 70s, wasn't it? In the, in the 70s. It's a remarkable piece of journalism. I mean, it's just beyond imagination yeah. that this was um, um, 
with uh, Laurence Olivier's voice. And the episode on the Holocaust uh, is just shattering. Um, the incredible soundtrack um, and Laurence uh, Olivier's voice, the gravity. And I was very fortunate when I first started in the film. I was trying to get in when I was 23 or 24. I had a a friend who knew Martin Smith, who was the editor that put the, the whole thing together. He cut all these pictures way back when. And I, 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 I was able to, to meet him. And uh, I said, I want to be a filmmaker. And he said, OK, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I want to be a writer. He said, well, I'm an editor, so I, I can't help you with that. But editors and writers, are, you know, very always we run in parallel because we do a very similar job. Um, and he said, well, you know, go off and write, try and get into the National Film School if you can. And um, I think two or three years later, I managed that. So that memory of um, the episode on the Holocaust stuck with me, has stuck with me throughout my life. And I, ha and I have rewatched the whole series probably four or five times um, over the years. And it and it's it's utterly flawless and um, just a staggering piece of journalism. It, it, that's exactly what it is. And when you see the Nazi officers talking neutrally about what they did, and then when you see the Holocaust survivors also talking factually about what happened to them, it is arresting. We don't have journalism like that. And I think it should be an inspiration for any form of journalism today that that can take the ultimate route to factual, that you let the audience make the decision. Yes. Yes, it was certainly journalism of the highest calibre. And it was made at a time when um, you mentioned the German officers talking um, in quite a matter-of-fact manner and it was made at a time before there had been a full reckoning of what had taken place that generation hadn't really come to terms with what they had done and um i can remember um talking to meryl streep when we were making florence foster jenkins and she had made a series called holocaust i think in the mid 70s one of her first it was tv series but i remember her saying that she felt that this was the series that had been uh, the piece of work that she was immensely proud of it and it had had an enormous effect in germany because it was the holocaust came as a shock mm. to a lot of young germans who really hadn't been taught about it and that TV show was a, 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 in the way that perhaps a show like Roots had had a, an enormous effect in the United States. And the show was, uh, the series was shown in schools and there was this reckoning, I think, between the grandchildren and the grandparents, um, you know, grandchildren saying, Granddad, Tell us about yeah, what, did you do during what, the war? what did you do during the war? And we had it in my own family. We have a, a, um, some of, two of my aunts married Germans. And there, there was a, a similar sense of reckoning taking place. So um, I can remember at the, uh, talking to Meryl about this and um, realising that 
entertainment and cinema really does shape um, people's sense of history. I, I, I was thinking, just uh, discussing it last night, um, how a film like The China Syndrome, the, uh, um, the Jane Fonda playing an anti-nuclear sort of activist, and how that movie led to the demise of the nuclear industry in the United States after mm -hmm. this movie, which hysterically predicted that if a nuclear power station went critical, it would burn a hole right through the center of the earth all the way to China and be the end of the world. Well, Americans basically stopped building nuclear power stations as a result <laughs> of this film. Yeah. And now, <laughs> you know, it's, it's led to um, dependence upon... Uh, fossil fuels as yes. a result. <laughs> yes, well, what goes around comes around. It might come around again. But you mentioned that uh, how cinema can play such a, uh, a pivotal role in uh, in shaping society and public opinion, which means you have a big responsibility. You've got to be responsible in what you've done. And I think um, in Golda, you've achieved that. Let me ask you, I mean, you, you had these uh, sensibilities to the Jewish story. What's it like being dragged into... Israeli society head first. I mean, uh, you come out the other side. Uh, what's that like now? How does well, that feel? I was, I was, I, 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 I already had a, a toe in the in the pond, I suppose. Um, I, you know, in my own career, um, has been so influenced by Jewish comedy, Jewish writing. Right. Um, I always thought that. Woody Allen was the greatest filmmaker, you know. I mean, you can quiz me on Seinfeld and I will probably get six out of ten of your questions. <laughs> Where are you on Larry David? I like Larry David. I've, I, I find some of um, Curb very, very funny. I, I, I like it when he's got a real problem to solve. Yeah. So when, <laughs> when he was trying to get hold of a, a, a kidney for his friend, that was the, my favourite episode. When he's making a fuss about nothing, I find it a bit irritating. Yeah. yeah. I think um, Jeff's wife is the person I think about all the time. Yes, she's she's extraordinary, uh, uh, and it's the sense of her comfort uh, with her anger. She's so comfortable in her <laughs> anger and and enjoys it so much, uh, which is extraordinary. Yeah. An extraordinary character. Yeah. Poor Jeff. <laughs> It's a Jewish uh, wife and husband. Yes, absolutely. It's such but, a funny uh, role. And, I, and you know, in talking about Scorsese, you know Goodfellas, um, there's a hilarious, it always happens, where the mother's chasing after Ray Liotta's wife, uh, the future wife. What are you talking about? You know who these people are, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, what are you doing at near Friday night? And And the husband in the corner, they did this deliberately. He never spoke. <laughs> it's a non-speaking role. The joke is untold the husband in the corner sitting there watching tv never speaks <laughs> <laughs> now the, the movie was seven years in the making and of course we know that that was elongated by covid and restrictions on bringing people together uh, but you say actually uh, the length of a movie making process is not that uncommon in an industry where so many projects Bite the dust, you, you get through it and then suddenly they never get made. There's funding issues, um, other talent goes off and makes other movies. There are so many variables in what is a people industry. Yes, 
It wasn't looking back, given the, the subject matter and uh, etc. It really wasn't too bad, actually. Um, and it took, I, I, I mean, realistically, it was sort of eighteen months before I had a first draft. Um, and the first complication was that we we first started off with with Amazon, who. And what happened was I, I was in Israel, I think my second or third trip there, and I was fast asleep uh, in a, you know, 50 quid Airbnb. Um, and I was renting a room in this young couple's house um, and the phone rang. And it was my American agent, John, um, who's um, a big character, shall we say. And he said, ah, Nicholas, I'm sitting here. I've got Ted Hope from Amazon. We're having lunch. I've told him about Golder and uh, handing the phone over now. So it's like sitting there in, in my underpants. <laughs> and Nicholas, Golder, sounds great. Tell me the story. So I had to pitch. You know, I didn't know what the story was in the middle. Of, you know, so anyway, I got up and sort of marched, you know, had to stand up to pitch the story. Yeah, and, You know, do the... Got to walk around a bit on a mobile. And another, and then this happens, and then and then Ted said at the end, "That's great, we'll do it." And it Amazing. <laughs> and then put the first. Amazing. Down. So, and then so we were, you know, um, I was very short of money at the time, and uh, so I I talked to Michael Kuhn, who's had we were producing together, and Michael had produced Florence, a hugely experienced man. And he said, you know, if we go down the road with Amazon, a studio, who knows what's going to happen? And I said, look, Michael, I need the money. And he said, okay. And he said, but I would rather be doing this independently because there's going to be trouble, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. And of course he was right. And um, we we developed it. Ted loved the, uh, Ted Hope loved the, story in the script wonderful guy um and wanted to do it on a very big budget and so it seemed that we, you know we'd be able to have like tank battles and also you know it was very oh, right. exciting wow. but then ted left and um uh, and um it's rather like you know whoever comes in they're going to uh, slaughter the children and golda was um put on the back burner but by that stage Helen had read the script and she had she liked it and um, and that was a huge huge boost for us. So we were, you know, a studio is always reluctant to let a, 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 a project with a star attached. That's right. Go to let it go. I just want to just give that a time out here. You're very modest about that. That is the equivalent of David Beckham at Inter Miami <laughs> signing Lionel Messi. Because when you talk about getting Dame Helen Mirren, I can only think of a list of one person who would be perfect for that role. You might have a slightly more encyclopedic view of, of the world, but she was absolutely perfect. And not just in terms of how she could dress up and become that woman to become you know, the accomplished actress that she was of a not dissimilar age. Maybe she's a bit older than her and, now but also in the fact of who she is um well she is an extraordinary person um i would describe her as uh just she had she has an open mind i think 
you know, her views are um, pro-peace, wants to see the region at, at, at ease, um, very sensitive to the, um, the difficulties of everyone in the region, so, um, but certainly an open mind. Um, and I th think that, you know, she, she grew up um, really ha with an enormous amount of respect for Golda, particularly as Golda was the first elected um, female pr prime minister in the world. That, uh, there was Indira Gandhi before her and a few others, but they, were, they had all inherited their positions, usually from their father, and they weren't elected in the way that, that Golda was a genuine genuinely a democratic MP. And I think Helen is cut from similar cloth to Golda. She's tough. She's indefatigable. She has, she, she has an, a, an enormous appetite for life and enjoys, act, loves what she does. And that energy is, uh, you know, you want to bottle that. I could do with a bit more of that. That would be great. Um, and she said yes to the script and then stuck with it because you you know it's like musical chairs with most most movies you know you you hear oh so and so was going to do it and then so and so dropped out and you, she just was there solidly from start to finish and did she have to go off and do other movies as well yeah i mean she i think she said yes to the script um in 2018 and uh, she went. She was off doing all sorts of other things, Shazam, and um, I think she might have. Uh, I can't remember what else she was doing. But uh, eventually, Michael very cleverly negotiated a deal for us to get our script back, and we were able to raise money in London on a far more modest budget. Yes. And it was because Helen was attached that we could raise the you could money. Do it. I mean, and it became an independent movie then, aren't yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, completely. Yeah. Mr. Secretary? You are to open a humanitarian corridor to the Third Army, Golda. We cannot allow 30,000 men to die of thirst. We'll send them water when we've got our prisoners back. I will try to arrange... And Sadat agrees to direct talks with Israel. Not the Zionist entity... Israel. That would be tantamount to recognition. Yes. He will never agree to that. The Arab world will turn against him. If he doesn't, I will order my planes to attack. All those men will die. All of them. The destruction of the Third Army would force Sadat from power. He'd be hanged in Tahrir Square. Well, that thought should focus his mind. And he would be replaced by a Soviet hardliner. You know this as well as I do. You mean a madman bent on the destruction of Israel? The Russians are on high alert. They are preparing 11 airborne divisions, do you understand? Do you think I don't know that? Let me tell you about the Russians, Henry. When I was a child in Ukraine, at Christmas time, my father would board up the windows of our house Golda. to protect us from Cossacks who would get drunk and attack Jews. They would beat Jews to death in the street for fun. My father would hide us in the cellar. And we'd stay silent, hoping the killers would pass us by. My father's face, Henry. I will never forget that look. All he wanted was to protect his children. 
I am not that little girl hiding in the cellar. And uh, one of the few British movies to be made in the last few years. I mean, the British industry has disappeared almost completely now. And so it was, uh, you know, Michael Kuhn's extraordinary uh, ability as a producer. And we we worked with a, a sales company called Embankment, run by a guy called Hugo Grumbar, who was absolutely solidly behind the movie. And he managed to raise, you know, a, a, a great deal of money from um, pre-sales and a big pre-sale in the United States. So that's how we were able to, to get going. That's fantastic. And uh, given what you're saying, I mean, I'm going back about a decade, the uh, movie industry in the UK seemed to be in rude health. Here's your opportunity uh, to tell our audience what's wrong here and what the government can do to help the movie industry here. We are a rich source of talent. We're known around the world. Uh, the English language has a power to... Um, cross boundaries like no other way. And my French wife talks about uh, the English sensibilities as being a really interesting and creative way of, of talking, method acting. There's a, there's a different style of acting. So what can we do to reinvigorate the British movie industry? So it's, it's quite a, an interesting tale uh, why things have gone wrong. Um, so your listeners may remember that that it was Gordon Brown introduced a tax break for the industry, I think in, I don't know when it was, 2007 or something, or something like that. And the idea to, uh, before that, there'd been a sort of very ropey double dipping tax scheme, which people were using to help finance films that was um, Gordon Brown shut down. Um, and he introduced a very good tax break. And the idea was that you could claim back 25% of your budget um, uh, 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 fr from the government too. And, and this led to an enormous boom uh, with new studios being built. Uh, Pinewood doubled inside this. It's become a very big business, particularly around North London, uh, with, with, you know, first-rate crews, um, very good small businesses, you know, the, the guy that makes snow the guy that does this, the, you know, um, and this business uh, expanded enormously and the Americans um, love to come and work here. So Star Wars, um, you know, um, Lord of the Rings, all of these shows are all shot in London. Um, and um, the American studios benefit from the tax break and they come and, you know, spend 100 or 200 million dollars here and it's been very very good for crews and for studios but it led to enormous inflation in costs so so crew costs uh went up um 30 percent um studios are full the whole time and for instance michael coon was chairman of the Northern Ireland Film Board and he arranged for a studio to be built in Belfast. Fantastic new studio, wonderful. They've been shooting, I don't know what it was, Lord of the Rings or something up there. Well, when we came to try and find a, a place to shoot Golda, he said, oh, I'll, I'll shoot it in Northern Ireland. I know everyone there, you know, they owe me a favour. Called up and they... The MD said, um, "We've been we're booked out for the next ten years by Apple." Oh my goodness! Um, 
So we went, we looked for other studios. The studio costs had gone through the roof. Um, we couldn't get any crew. The crew costs were, we, we'd to, so to find a grip, that's a, a, it's a very, very skilled craft job where you basically move the camera around. You know, it takes a lot of yeah. experience. We went through 178, the 178 top grips in the country before we found someone that was free. Everyone was working on big American projects and costs had gone through the roof. So the uh, unintended consequence of this tax break was that it priced British movies out of the industry. So um, with our small budgets, you know, a British movie, a big budget for a British movie might be $8 million, say. That would be a very solid budget. Well, Lord of the Rings had hundreds of millions yeah. to spend. So the net effect of it all... So, so this became completely apparent when the SAG strike, the actors, Screen Actors Guild strike started. Yes. So all the American projects in London stopped instantly. I think it's Deadpool's the only one that was to keep, able to keep going. Oh, no, no, it was um, not Deadpool. It was um, um, uh, Paddington kept going because somehow it, they managed to wangle it. It was a, classified as a British movie. So all of the studios were suddenly empty and all of the crews were unemployed. So lots of people, camera people, etc., haven't worked since the strike started and it was like the tide went out and revealed so everyone thought oh well the British movies well that will be good well there aren't any mm. um, and so and there was no fight so there was plenty of studio space and plenty of crews around all desperate for work but there were no British films because no one had in no one was there to invest because it's it's so tough making an independent movie uh, and it's so risky and the BFI for instance had really invested its time and energy in training crews and making tiny movies so the the kind of movies that I like to make which are medium budget there was no money for for, for us certainly not for Golder the BBC has more or less withdrawn from that space and making very small films and Channel 4 have, uh, aren't. So I would have thought this year, if we've got three or four starts, I, I, that would be... It's uh, at one point, you mm. know, in the 90s, we were making 30 movies a yeah. year. So, I mean, what the, the hope is um, that what would be a, a more sensible, a, a very sensible way of tackling this problem is to have a two-tier tax scheme so that foreign investors, Americans, when they come here, over here, they get 25%. That will keep them here. But if genuinely British films got a break of 35%, right. then that would give us just enough extra cash to be for the investors to be able to take that risk um, so I think that that's the plan that we're going to be pushing now. And whether that's possible or not, I don't know. I wish you every success with that. Um, as regards the tension of the movie, the pain and the agony of the existential battle of the Yom Kippur War, 
is present throughout. And Golda Meir to her assistant, who always, she always went to the roof, the roof of, you'll explain where that roof was. <laughs> uh, she's having a fag, she's, she's reaching over the side, and she says if, if they get to Tel Aviv, in other words, if the Egyptians and the Syrians get to Tel Aviv, make sure, you know, make sure I'm dead. Yes. Well, um, there's always, there were always rumours um, floating around that Golda, um, there's a, a there's a missing four hours the day the day that the war started that are, are relatively undocumented and that afternoon there's nobody quite knew where she was for four hours. And it's sub- subsequently, it's turned out that we did know where she was. She was doing all sorts of things. It was, it was just the documents weren't available. Um, but there was a rumor went round that she was suicidal and she was so depressed about it all. Um, uh, but I, I think what's far more likely is that, she, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't the sort of person that would ever give up the idea that she would um, capitulate. It was nonsense. She, yeah. she, this was one more very difficult experience in her life. She'd seen, she'd seen so much. She was entirely calm throughout the war and was this absolute rock. Um, but um, I think it was entire. You know, at the the darkest moment, I think it was entirely possible that. She, her life was and Israel were the same thing. So it was like, if there's no Israel, there's no me. So the idea of the country falling was, for her, was a death. Yes. So she certainly wouldn't wanted to have been alive in a world in which there was no Israel. And she certainly wouldn't have been prepared to give um, the enemies of Israel the 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 pleasure of taking her captive. Now, after the Syrians had been stopped on the Golan Heights, the the threat of the existential threat lifted, and, and it um, and it would have been very, I think, very difficult for um, the Syrians or the Egyptians to have overrun. Um, Israel and of course Israel was a nuclear it is was and is a nuclear nation so it, it there there that would have been quite a deterrent to any invader but I mean I think in that moment there was a, an existential fear and I suspect that Golda wouldn't have been taken alive um, and she was very tough in that respect so I mean, I came, uh, you know, the, the director was very keen to have this scene. I was a little bit ambivalent about it, but I thought, well, this is fair. I think this is fair enough. It's not documented, any of this, but I've talked to people that, um, you know, her, her um, to Haggai, and I talked to the, the grandsons, and they thought it was kind of acceptable okay. to, to, to go down that road. And it underpins the fact that her father did his best while she was a child, to hide hunting to kill her. She was a survivor of the pogroms in, in Ukraine, Russia. So she, was, um, so she was born in 1898, and when she was five or six, uh, she, her father was a carpenter, a very humble man, and um, 
she remem- she recalls in her autobiography that at Christmas time the uh, drunken Cossacks would uh, appear in the streets and attack Jews and murder them in, um, in this sort of drunken orgy. And her childhood memory of her father boarding up the windows of their house and and um never left her and um her father her, her sister Shana would carry a knife with her and um she recalls that she has um three principal memory memories of childhood and they were fear hunger and fear and so she she was no strange she, she but her father raised enough money to be able to to um, send each of the children to uh, the United States. And after a, a few years, they managed to escape R- Russia, as it was then, and settled in uh, Milwaukee, where she flourished, loved America, the family did okay, and she was able to go to school, which is the thing that she wanted most of all. A remarkable yeah. woman. I'm going to quote Dr. Inat Wilf who is a modern thinker on uh, the future of Israel. She classes herself as a feminist, an atheist, and a Zionist, a remarkable woman whose ideals seem to, in my opinion, unify Israelis and Jews around certain values that are above politics, that are inalienable. I certainly find the cut of her jib acceptable and there might be things uh, that she says and thinks that I might disagree with even fundamentally except that there's a magic about the way that she describes things and I'm going to quote her it was from Ivrit so I translated it on uh, Twitter and it said this and we're going to draw the issues of today with Golda Meir can we say with due caution writes Dr Inat Wilf that Netanyahu has collapsed During the Yom Kippur War, Golda was in a position to move Moshe Dayan aside. You catalogued that very, very well in the the movie and managed the campaign without him. In the Lebanon War of 1982, Menachem Begin, after a long period of hiding, admitted that he could no longer. Who will come to Netanyahu and do this? I was never a Netanyahu hater. She is an opponent of Netanyahu politically. However, she doesn't hate him. Um, I appreciated his caution and also saw how his pessimistic worldview was proven many times. Unfortunately, to be correct, I thought he made an important contribution to the fact that his voters feel that the state of Israel is theirs and they are no longer the second Israel. But faced with the surprise and losses in the Yom Kippur War, the warrior Moshe Dayan also collapsed. Faced with the defeat and losses in Lebanon, even the leader, Menachem Begin, could not take it any more. Therefore, it is very likely that for Netanyahu, who dedicated his life to warning against Iran and terrorist organizations, who always sees darkness and threats, who believes that the Jewish people do not know how to recognize dangers in time, who believe that he must be prime minister to protect the people of Israel, for Netanyahu to know that he will forever be the leader in charge, and yes, the leader responsible for that black day in history of the Jewish people, the day that Hamas invaded at Simchas Torah, the worst day in the history of the Jewish people since the Holocaust, 
for the complete collapse of the reason of the existence of the state of Israel, which is to ensure that Jews will no longer be defenseless in the abyss of killing, this is probably beyond his ability to contain and deal with. Will he admit that he can no longer, or will there be someone like Golda who will understand that Diane is no longer who he was and that the state of Israel must be led without him? I put that in because there are so many parallels with the movie. So, first of all, Golda, why was she the woman for the moment? Um, I, I think it's perfectly right to consider Golda in the same breath as Winston Churchill. I think that they were two great leaders. And what Churchill said at the beginning of the Second World War, all of my mistakes have brought me to this moment. Uh, he was a man that made enormous mistakes during his life, particularly the Gallipoli campaign, but he accepted them and he learned from them. And I think that Golda had led this enormous life. She'd seen the pogroms, she understood the Americans, she un she'd been uh, an ambassador in Russia under Stalin, she knew the Russians She under and she knew the Arabs very well and she knew her own generals. And all of the enormous traumas that she'd suffered during her life had prepared her for this moment of the Yom Kippur War. And she was able to stand firm because for her, it was all, at my sense anyway, it's how I wrote the script was, this was another traumatic moment, but I know what to do. Um, and you're right, uh, Moshe Diane collapsed emotionally. But Golda knew that she also needed him there. She needed him as a symbol. And he was a very clever soldier and helped to make the decision to cross the canal, which was an extraordinarily dangerous um, and uh, perilous, uh, difficult decision to make. So she managed to keep all of her generals and, and, and managed to get the best out of them. She was not politically close to Ariel Sharon, uh, but he, even he respected her. This is the, 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 the enormity of her reputation. And she knew that he was her most aggressive, um, general and a brilliant soldier that commanded the respect of his division. If you talk to Sharon's men, which I have done, they worshipped him. Yeah. And she knew, you know, I, in the script, I describe him as a dog on a leash. You know, and she knew when to let him loose. Yes. And when she did, he created chaos. For he never Egypt. changed either. No. So with that in mind, okay, where are we now? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm knowledgeable about that period. Uh, I'm not an expert, but I'm knowledgeable about the first Yom Kippur War. My knowledge and understanding of the present day situation is no greater than the average person that takes an interest in Israel, I would say. So your listeners must take everything I say with an absolute pinch of salt. But Netanyahu is an enormously experienced soldier. He's proved his bravery on many occasions. He was, uh, he fought in the Yom Kippur War. He's paid an enormous price. He lost his brother on the Entebbe raid. Um, and I, um, one of I, I and my 
only real real insight into him um, in a personal way is one of Golda's bodyguards, um, uh, uh, Mordecai. Um, he was a very, very well-known hostage rescuer and he led the team with Netanyahu and Barak when they, uh, I think it was the Sabina flight that uh, where hostages were being held by, um, um, I think it was Islamic Jihad or something. Um, anyway, he led this team and Netanyahu um, took part in this. You know, can you imagine going onto a packed airliner to try and take out the terrorists? So, um, whatever anyone thinks of Netanyahu he will be capable of making very, very tough decisions. Now, my hope is that everything that he has, um, everything that he has experienced during his life, his extraordinary experience with the Americans in particular, and this is always going to be the key to everything, what the Americans decide to do. Um, I hope that this is his golden moment, that all of his experience will come together and um, there will be a reckoning afterwards. Yes. Now, um, there has been an enormous intelligence failure. Um, I think that when the commission comes, let's hope it's plenty of time after the resolution of this, and that may be in the, in the future, far in the future. Yeah. But I think that this is a moment for unity for Israelis and for all of us that uh, believe in f freedom and in democracy. And um, this is not the time to be uh, um, attacking the, uh, the prime minister. Um, my, my hope is that he will, this will prove his moment of um, where he will demonstrate uh, great leadership. Uh, that's all I can say, really. I'm going to say amen after that. Thank you, Nicholas. Can we talk about the pivotal relationship with Henry Kissinger? They were they talked to each other like they were cousins, <laughs> like they were family friends. And of course, um, she teased him about being Jewish. Uh, in Israel, we write from right to left, so you can... <laughs> protest all you want about being an American or a Secretary of State, but actually, we're both Jews, aren't we, mate? Yes, there was, it was, uh, I, I think after the Yom Kippur War, and they became uh, even closer friends, and uh, Henry Kissinger visited Golda in her home with his wife, uh, Nancy. They, they had got married. And um, again, uh, cut cut from similar cloth in some respects and Kissinger is an extraordinary man just turned 100 um, yeah and again his incredible life um, you know he fled to um, Germany as a 15 year old um, he was an enormous sports fan and loved football and even when Jews were banned from the games I think it was would it have been Bayern Munich he was a, a, yeah. a fan of he would still go to the games knowing full well that he'd be built, beaten to a pulp, but he kept, kept on going anyway. Eventually, uh, he, he, he escaped, uh, Germany, but then 
extraordinarily returned at the age of, I think, of 21 or 22 as a sergeant. And because of his enormous um, intellectual capacity and his knowledge of the German people and the language, he was put in charge of administering the city of Cologne as a sergeant, as a 22-year-old. In what year is this, Nicholas? 1946. Unbelievable. Um, and he proved a, 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 an extraordinary interrogator. Um, he uh, was involved in the denazification program and would um, sit and, of course, chat in perfect German, his first language, with uh, various German officers and Nazis and um, was so charming that he'd get them to just talk. There was no need for any rough stuff. They'd, uh, they just wanted to tell him everything and he proved an extraordinarily brilliant uh, interrogator and then went on to return to America went, you know, though he was from a, uh, not from a, 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 an educated background, he got into Yale and wrote his um, seminal paper on uh, the uh, describing the ideas of detente, uh, which were adopted by the Americans, and he became Secretary of State at a very young age um, and went on to dominate um, two decades of American foreign policy. So um, I think Golda's view of um, Kissinger was that he was a frenemy. Um, <laughs> uh, his project was detente, containing the Soviets. He was willing to, to, to see Israel uh, win the Yom Kippur War, but he, he wanted them to win with a bloody nose. He wanted... Uh, the Arabs to feel that they'd uh, achieved something mm. in the hope that they would abandon the Soviets. He wanted the Egyptians to abandon the Soviets and side with the Americans. And he wanted the uh, uh, Americans to be seen as the only superpower that could help the Egyptians regain the Sinai, etc., etc. That was his plan. Gold's plan was rather different. Um, she, her, what she hoped to achieve from the war was to force the Egyptians to recognize um, Israel. She was to stop calling it the Zionist entity and call it the State of Israel. Exactly. So that was the purpose of the war, and um, she knew that um, the United States would be reluctant to help. Nixon was, uh, but ultimately would, because Nixon, in fact, said, uh, if we let the Soviet Union, if we let a nation uh, um, defeat a democratic country using Soviet women weapons, what message does that, does that send to the free world? Mm -hmm. So her mission, uh, whilst fighting this ground war, she also understood that the diplomatic battle was just as vital and bringing the americans in so that you know she obviously wanted the americans to help with weapons the uh, israeli air force had been very hit very hard and um the particular you know the phantoms had many of them had been shot down they, there was a lot of confusion 
Um, and so she wanted more phantoms, she wanted more shells, etc. In the end, the uh, weapons that came in were never used um, because the um, Israelis were able to fight on, but these weapons came in and replenished stocks. So they had, they were able to fight more aggressively as a, as, as a result of this uh, support from the Americans. But it was really, um, it was really forcing Nick, uh, Nick, uh, Kissinger into a position when, when, um, when the Soviets began rattling the cutlass and were threatening to get involved in the ground war, she forced Kissinger to take America to DEFCON 2, Defense Condition 2, which meant that all leave around the world was cancelled, the nuclear weapons were prepared, and two huge fleets uh, sailed into the um, Mediterranean, took up positions off the coast of uh, Egypt. Uh, very rem reminiscent of what's happened. Um, Biden has sent a fleet into the... Um, USS Gerald Ford. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so there is a, a profound echo there, and it's to demonstrate that America's um, um, support and resolve. And when these fleets sailed into the Mediterranean in '73, it forced the Soviets to back down, uh, which they did. And then, without the support of the Soviets, um, I think Sadat felt very isolated and was forced into to a position of recon uh, uh, where he recognized um, Israel. So it, it, it was extraordinary that um, Golda was prepared to push Nick, uh, Nixon and Kissinger in the way she did. Uh, but it was, you know, this is what her life was about. Yes. Um, and she, she would have, she, I imagine she would have been a great poker player because, <laughs> you know, it was a game of bluff, the yeah, whole thing. A game of, of who sheer was, yeah, based on who was going to blink first and Kissinger blinked, well, the Russians blinked first and then, um, uh, Kissinger, um, then lent his support to, to Golder entirely. I understand, but the president is in a difficult position. The winter is coming if the Saudis were... The Russians have started a massive airlift. We're seeing planes streaming into Cairo and Damascus. We have lost 500 tanks and one-third of the Air Force. 500? Yes, and 30 Phantoms. I could have launched a preemptive strike, but I didn't, to save your blushes. That decision cost us dearly. Watergate is sweeping through Washington like a firestorm gold, and Nixon is a lame duck. But you're not. Golda. Would it help if I came to Washington? You want to fly here during a war? Yes. Golda, that would cause problems. The Jewish community here would be alarmed. <laughs> no doubt. If the Arabs defeat us with Soviet weapons, what message does that send to the free world, Henry? I have some phantoms for you. Thank you. Good night, Gorda. And their playful and personal relationship 
delighted to hear that they were close friends uh, afterwards. Um, Golda Zingers, as you call them, great <laughs> and famous quotes from the great woman, but not all of her famous quotes got in there. Like, for example, the one about when all, when, when the Arabs love their children like we do, there'll be peace. Uh, there is a, even a substantial um, possibility that she never even said it, that it might have actually just been a speech which she may or may not have said. There are no recordings. If you look it up on YouTube, there are actresses who say it in a very uh, deep uh, Americanized um, continental voice. Um, she didn't say it. And actually, I, you explained um, it's not that um, positive um, a comment to be saying about um, Arab people. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 there there will be Arab people who do love their children as of much. Course, as, of course, of know. course. I, uh, um, I think I, there was a we had a Q and A last week where someone in the audience said, "You know, why didn't you?" In, you know, this was Golda's greatest line. Um, she says, um, um, "When the the Arabs love their children more than they hate us, there will be peace." And I I was a little bit. So I said, "Well, I didn't." include it in the script I, i'm very aware of it of course because i said i i, I thought it was a um a rather uh rather difficult uh, um and um you know i know plenty of arab people of course love their children it's yeah. it's a little bit it was a little bit too much i felt and and not a very pleasant thing to say um, so I was rather uh, a little bit dismissive of the gentleman's question, um, but nevertheless, if you were, if she had said, "When Hamas love their children more than they hate us, there will be peace," and I think that that would be completely true because we, you know, um, um, what what is so clear? Uh, I was I was talking last night on a a, a, um, a podcast with the former ambassador um, uh, to the United States, Michael Oren, and um, he said one of the reasons that this surprise has occurred is that nobody could believe that Hamas would do this because there's no sense to it. It doesn't help the Palestinian people in any way, quite the reverse. It means that the possibility of a Palestinian state has been put back decades, if it's ever going to be possible now. So, um, and he, he said, you know, the thing, the, the, the mistake that we have made is not understanding that Hamas's aim is just destruction mm. and destruction of their own people is fine. He, 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 he said he, he administered the Gaza Strip for uh, a period and was involved in the is, is, Israeli withdrawal and, and knows as much about that um, conflict as, as, as anyone. And he recalls, um, I can't remember who it was, but the, I think the head of Mossad at the time, showing him a photograph that the, one of the Hamas leaders was standing on top of a pile of rubble in Gaza. And he said, Michael, what does this picture say to you? And he said, well, it says to me, um, Hamas have lost this battle. 
And the, the Mossad guy said, well, look at his face. He's smiling. Yeah. Why is he smiling? And Mike, Michael Oren took a few seconds and he said, look, this is their triumph. Yeah. The destruction of the Gaza Strip, the deaths of potentially thousands of Palestinians for them is a triumph. Um, so, you know, there is this sense that what is what has taken place is not rational. Uh, it's not rational to the Western mind. And I suspect to most Arabs, it's not rational. Yes. Hamas are different. They are the tip of the jihadist spear. Yeah. And of course, it's a death cult. And we've seen that in, you know, um, we saw that in, in Syria um, uh, with, with the various uh, genocides taking place there of, uh, uh, of various ethnic groups. Um, we've seen it in, in London. We've seen it in Pakistan. We've seen it across the world. Um, so that is what Israel I, I, is, is dealing with. It is, this is part of a worldwide jihadist movement. Yeah. And um, I think that these extraordinarily shocking images will i hope wake the world up to that reverberate to the realities um yeah so many more of us who follow this more closely have understood for a very long time now just uh playing the postmodern role of making this movie and releasing it in 2023 looking back at 1973 uh with progressive eyes now she liked a fag or 10 yeah didn't she and yes. and it was killing her you yes. document obviously uh, the cancer that she had and another postmodern reference to respecting women among her male colleagues who didn't stand up for her <laughs> she's the prime minister for goodness sake but it's because i'm a woman you hinted uh, that uh, they didn't stand up excuse me gents i'm talking <laughs> Well, I mean, my uh, only my thought about Golda, and she she didn't describe herself as a feminist, and I'm often asked, you know, around this uh, question, my own suspicion and my sense of um, having spent many years now thinking about her and reading about and, and talking, I I think that she was in the same way that Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher uh, was this, just born this force of nature. I don't think Golda ever really bothered to, um, she never thought, oh, I'm a woman. There was no sense of no. victimhood. She, people just did what she said. Similar to Margaret Thatcher in that way. Yeah. <laughs> there was no, you know, these people, she was... And in a strange way, it gave her an extra power because any man that underestimated Golda was just going to end up with his balls in her handbag. <laughs> and in the same way that, you know, Margaret, you know, you'd get handbagged by Margaret. I, I never forget. Was it Francis Pym? I think he was on the TV once and he said, um, well, I went to, had a meeting with Margaret and she, she uh, spoke to me in a way I have never been spoken to by a woman in my life. And he was red faced with, with the upset. And uh, I think that Golda it was the same. And I, 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 when I was speaking to um, um, 
I was speaking to a very uh, a, a, a man who's now in his 80s, a very senior figure in the um, uh, research and development, um, who uh, and she was in the bunker with Golda throughout. And I said, oh, you know, what did she... And he said, oh, she sat there, she smoked, she drank coffee, she would nod, she sat, she didn't move. People just come and whisper to her. I said, did you ever go and speak to her? And he said, oh, no, 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 I, I was far too frightened. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> he said, you didn't, you didn't speak to her. You just, uh, you know, you just heard what she thought. And, and it, but it wasn't a fear in the same sense that, you know, um, Assad was feared by his generals. It was a, it was a, a profound respect. Uh, just on that sort of sidebar, Golda said during the... Uh, uh, during the war, I, I I I knew we were winning when Assad started shooting his generals. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but really, I mean, it was just you know, and that's that country, the tragedy. Uh, so he, uh, so when the, you know, the initially initially the, the Syrians overran the Golan, and it looked as though they were going to move across the Jordan and be in Israel, but they stopped, and nobody knows quite why, and it. Um, and were driven back. And the commander of the Golan, who was um, um, was called back to uh, Damascus and was called into Assad's office, and Assad handed him a pistol and said, you know what to do. And the guy shot himself right. in the head oh in God. Assad's. And there was a pile, you know, by the end of the war, there was a pile of dead dead generals. So, of course, this is this is no way to run a an army because no one will ever tell you the truth because nobody wants to and this is exactly what Putin has done in Ukraine he never got the true picture because no one was willing to say I've made a mess of things and no. the plan was bad and everything you've done has been a disaster yes um, and I think one thing that has shone through about you Nicholas and indeed Dame Helen is this ridiculous in in my opinion our uh, idea of Jew face, you don't need to be Jewish to make a movie about a Jewish person. The sensibilities are not innate. They are human. They are universal. I mean, it's been... Uh, uh... An extraordinary bore to have to deal with this over the last six or eight months. Helen yes. has Helen has been very very patient. I've been I'm less, sorry about it. I don't really. I've you know, been I less patient. Yeah, I don't. You don't have to talk. No, because I, um, I think it's ridiculous too. Uh, you know, I just um, think I have to be here to, <laughs> to chronicle this. You know, but I, I I find it absurd too. She she's done a tremendous job. Her talent is all that matters. Um, that's it and that's in my view that's all that matters I have um, I mean the uh, you know if if we were to spend some time discussing the argument is that if you're not Jewish and you don't have that lived experience then you cannot authentically portray a Jewish person um, I'm going to place a bet that Dame Helen Mirren could do a better job than me <laughs> on Golda, even though my grandma think, was a bit like her. I think you're, pro you're probably right. <laughs> but the, you know, she she's 
played Golder. People that knew Golder have came onto the set and... And gone well. And said she's more Golder than Golder. So she has has portrayed her authentically, which means that argument about lived experience disintegrates like a cheap umbrella. And I would hope that that might put an end to this endless discussion, um, which has no merit whatsoever. And if you tease it out a little further... Um, so Denzel Washington played Macbeth recently with enormous success. Did anyone say to him, you can't be playing a Scottish king? I mean... No. You know, the problem from where I sit, and, and, and Helen's been incredibly supportive of me with this, is that, you, you know, it's, it's, Helen, she was asked, has this put you off? the idea of playing Jewish characters in the future because you'll get this pushback. And she said, no, it hasn't. But Helen is in a position of enormous power. She's so respected and loved. She can do that. What if you were a 25-year-old actress Yeah. and you were asked, oh, we've got this part. Are you this? Are you that? Are you willing to play a gay person? Are you willing to play outside of your ethnic group? Are you? And what are they going to say? Yeah. They're going to say, well, this might be the end of my career. It's terrible. Um, and that's the problem. And in terms of my own work, I've got five or six projects on my desk. I would say three of them are going to run into enormous trouble for the same sort of, you know, what are you doing writing about this? What are you doing? Should you, you know, you can't write about that because that's, that area is only for yeah. this type of it's person. Stop. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, I've described it as a creeping authoritarianism. Yeah. And it is because, you know, when writers and artists start to self-censor, censor, then this is a narrowing of the culture. And once this process begins, it's very hard to stop it. And we've seen in uh, the 20th century was about this process. Um, So it's really important that uh, writers in particular say, I'm going to write about what I want. Now, if it's good, then just accept. If it's bad, you know, criticize and I'll do something else. But I hope that Helen's triumph has helped stem this tide in some way and she's an incredibly brave person to have done this and then to stick with it and then put up with all of this endless criticism uh but i have to say you know i've screened this film with uh a dozen predominantly jewish audiences now here and in the in the united states and in israel and i have heard nothing but praise for her performance yes it is. It's, it's magnificent. And finally, Nicholas, she lived to see peace with Egypt that she paved the way for just a matter of what, four and a half, five years later, 1978, the jocular Anwar Sadat laughing his way through lunches and dinners with his, with his brand new best friends. And your, ma- and your movie pays that tribute fulsomely. 
Well, that was the triumph of her life, um, the peace that has remained in place with Egypt for nearly 50 years now was an extraordinary achievement and that's what her life was really about. That cannot be taken away from her. And I hope that the film underlines that and that um, her reputation, particularly in Israel where she's not loved, um, I think the film has um, reminded Israelis that she was a great woman and given her a full the full story of what took place, Israelis formed their opinion of Golda immediately after the Yom Kippur War, after the Agrinat Commission. Um, and they didn't have the full picture. And now I think the movie has had uh, the effect of giving, giving a, a, a far fuller picture of what took place and to underline her extraordinary leadership during that war and all that, you know, Israel has much to thank her for. And that process is happening, and the film has been um, a, an enormous success in Israel. We've had, I think, 250,000 people have seen the, the movie at the cinema. It's been bigger than Oppenheimer and Barbie. It's been number one for, for four or five weeks. So um, it's been the privilege of a lifetime to um, to tell her story, and I have benefited um, enormously. Uh, uh, she, you know, Golda has been a presence in my life and has got me through some very difficult times. And I am grateful to her and all of her family and indeed the people of Israel. Nicholas Martin, I'm, I'm really touched by the time and detail that you've taken. And I thank you sincerely. This is truly one of the best interviews that I've done in the 120 episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State and maybe uh, in my career I, I'm trying to think I just want to thank you very much for all the time that you've given me all the detail and, and the emotion that you have projected to us and our listeners and, and thank you again sincerely for joining me here with our listeners on Johnny Gould's Jewish State thank you Johnny there's a lot of competing attention for you, I do know. You're probably consuming more media than ever before to be right up to speed with what's going on in Israel and back home. I'm playing my part in the best way I can, using my journalistic and production skills to make the case for Israel via this, Johnny Gould's Jewish State, and I've done it since 2018. If you enjoy my podcast, and you'd rather it existed than not, that I kept doing it, you can support me very simply by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Johnny Gould because it really helps. Tell your friends, subscribe now if you haven't already, scroll back and look through the 120 previous episodes. And as always, thank you for listening. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education.